0: Good morning. This is Northern Light for Tuesday, June 13th. I'm Monica Sandresky.
1: And I'm Todd Mo.
0: Two former female corrections officers are suing the Clinton County Sheriff's Office with claims of sexual harassment.
2: So the county has not said a lot publicly about the lawsuits that, that are facing the Sheriff's Office.
0: We'll sit down with the press
2: Republicans' Carly Newton, who's been looking into the
0: lawsuits.
1: The state Senate has confirmed a new state health commissioner, also how mold removal is becoming a basic part of being an army soldier.
3: Mold is
4: ubiquitous. There's mold spores everywhere. Basically, all they need is enough surface water activity to grow.
0: And we'll look back at the childhood of one of the North Country's oldest residents, Frank White of Canton, turns 105 years old today. He grew up in Pirates and watched its rise and fall as a paper mill town.
4: I'd say 75% of the students I went to school with moved away.
0: All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us.
1: Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Adirondack Foundation and the Adirondack Birth to Three Alliance, dedicated to providing all children the best possible start in life, adirondackbt3.org. And by Citizen Advocates, offering the North Country mental health, addiction, and housing services, plus crisis care, job training, and more. citizenadvocates.net slash 124.
0: This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandresky.
1: And I'm Todd Moe. Two former female corrections officers in Clinton County say they were sexually harassed and faced gender discrimination on the job. The two women, Regina Moore and Mandy Devins, are suing the Clinton County Sheriff's Office. A former deputy who previously spoke out about her own claims of harassment is again calling for Sheriff David Favreau to resign. Champlain Valley reporter Kara Chapman spoke with Carly Newton from the uh, Plattsburgh Press Republican who's been looking into the claims.
2: What have the sheriff's office and the county done about these claims? So the county has not said a lot publicly about the lawsuits that that are facing the sheriff's office. Uh, When I spoke to Chairman Mark Henry last, he had issued a statement which highlighted their workplace violence policy And he said they take all complaints seriously while conducting investigations and any of those complaints. Um, Also in a statement, he had said the legislature has and will continue to evaluate the working environment uh, to ensure employees are safe and treated fairly. Uh, Similar to the county, Favreau could not speak on the lawsuits directly because it is a pending issue. And all he told me was that the attorneys are dealing with it at this time. And, uh, you know, one former sheriff's deputy, Chelsea Liberty, has been very vocal, not just about these women's claims, but also claims that she has made against the sheriff's department. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So these lawsuits, they were actually brought to my attention uh, by Liberty when she attended the county legislator's last regular session meeting on May 24th.
5: So since I last addressed the legislative body, two more women have now filed federal lawsuits against the Clay County Sheriff's Office. That is now a total of five women, to include myself, that have publicly spoken out with claims of sexual harassment, discrimination,
2: and or retaliation. Chelsea had also called on the sheriff to resign from his position at that May 24th uh, meeting again. Her reasoning for doing so, she said, was because there is no leadership or oversight of the sheriff's department under Favreau. And
5: there is a serious concern for the safety of inmates and female employees within that facility.
2: She actually ran against him, right, when he ran for
5: reelection last year?
2: Yeah, she wasn't able to get on the ballot, so she had to launch a writing campaign because it was too late in the election process. Ultimately, she ended up losing the election to Favreau. And what does Sheriff Favreau have to say about all this? How is he responding to Liberty's calls for him to resign? So Favreau's been pretty adamant that he won't step down as sheriff. Um, When I spoke to him last, he had called Liberty's Calls for his resignation, bitter politics, and he had said she was playing games, and he said he would not engage in those games with her. He also said that he does not believe there's a serious issue within his department, like Liberty says there is. And while both of these lawsuits were filed in court recently, Favreau also told me they were not necessarily new, like Liberty had implied. He clarified that they were from the same investigation with the same people that has been ongoing for over a year and a half. And what's next for the lawsuits at this point? So the most recent development in Moore's case specifically is the Clinton County Sheriff's Office submitting a motion to dismiss her complaint on May 31st, and the motion to dismiss the Sheriff's Office had called Moore's claims unjustifiable and said they aimed to be provocative to garner media attention. Uh, it's unclear so far if the Sheriff's Office would do the same for Devin's lawsuit.
0: That was Carly Newton with the Plattsburgh Press Republican speaking with Champlain Valley reporter Kara Chapman about lawsuits against the Clinton County Sheriff's Office. The New York Senate has confirmed the state's new health commissioner, Dr. James McDonald, has held the position in an acting role since the previous commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett, resigned in December. McDonald said in a statement that he wants to eliminate health disparities and increase access to affordable health care. According to Politico, McDonald's appointment comes as pandemic-era Medicaid policies are ending, so the state is reviewing the coverage of 9 million New Yorkers. Early estimates show about 100,000 people could Become newly uninsured. The state is also grappling with a shortage of health care workers.
1: State police are continuing their investigation into the homicide of a person imprisoned at Governor Correctional Facility. According to State Police Troop B, Luigi Capolino was found strangled to death in his cell following an altercation with his cellmate last week. An autopsy confirmed Capolino was murdered. His cellmate, Wilfredo No, Remains in custody. <laughs> listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's seven minutes past eight. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe.
0: And I'm Monica Sandresky. Just ahead, we'll talk with one arts educator in Glens Falls about the importance of physical art galleries to the North Country. That conversation in just a few minutes here on Northern Light.
1: Dan Bergren out of Boston Spa. You can check out more of Dan's music on our website. He's part of the Underscore Project. You'll find more at ncpr.org/underscore. Northern Light is supported by St. Lawrence Health, committed to keeping the community healthy and safe by providing vaccines for patients to strengthen their defenses, stlawrencehealthsystem.org. And throughout the year, you've depended on the voices and programs you get on North Country Public Radio. As NCPR's fiscal year wraps up at the end of the month, your support by June 30th, helps keep this station strong. If you've never given before, now is a great time to start. Make your donation today, right now, at ncpr.org give. And thanks.
0: The Army is escalating one of its toughest battles, one that homeowners fight, too, the war against mold in buildings. A new approach makes mold prevention a basic part of being a soldier. From Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Jay Price reports for the American Homefront Project.
3: Sergeant Major David Kutschall walked into a barracks room for a routine inspection and immediately looked at the ceiling. Yeah, that's the start. Fifth?
4: Yes, sergeant. Mm-hmm.
3: He was pointing at tiny black dots, together enough to maybe cover a dime, dotting a vent cover just inside the door. Mold. And that's just regular maintenance. The residents, Privates Second Class Aubrey Smith and Indy Ziegler, listened attentively. Since you're new to the Army, right, in barracks tends to be a problem. So it's our responsibility as soldiers to keep it and maintain The Army is using these routine room checks as a teaching opportunity about mold, which can cause health issues that vary greatly depending upon the amount of exposure and how sensitive someone is. The push started last year after serious mold issues forced more than 1,000 Fort Bragg soldiers to relocate from a cluster of barracks. A dozen of the buildings are scheduled to be torn down. That and mold problems on Georgia and Maryland bases triggered an Army-wide inspection of all barracks, family housing, in offices mold was found and cleaned up in more than 2000 places now the army is bringing its nearly half a million soldiers into the fight and the primary effort there is inform and educate them in terms of how to report lieutenant general omar j jones leads army installation management command which is responsible for maintaining thousands of buildings so if they've seen mold they have a concern how do they tell someone and who do they tell to make sure we can get the right experts there to help them At Bragg, for example, Cutshaw told the young soldiers to use a smartphone app to request maintenance for the mold on the vent and also for moldy caulk on their tub. Jones said the plan also includes an Army-wide standard for defining and cleaning up mold, tracking mold cases with sophisticated software to identify trends, and giving higher priority to mold reports. We will have a trained and certified expert responding to them in less than 24 hours. The problem the Army faces is common. One study estimated 47% of U.S. homes had substantial dampness or mold issues. Another found 100% had mold on some surfaces. Philip Ferry of the University of Central Florida's Solar Energy Center is an expert on mold issues and structures.
4: Mold is ubiquitous. There's mold spores everywhere. Basically, all they need is enough surface water activity to grow.
3: How the spores get that moisture is what humans have to figure out and prevent, and it's often complicated. The cause of moisture that triggers, say, mold inside walls isn't always obvious, and whether a particular mold problem is serious is a big question. Take mold in bathrooms, an issue that pops up a lot in the barracks.
4: So is that a problem or not? It's not really a problem for me because, I mean, a little bit of will fix it.
3: For larger issues, the Army will bring in work crews, like if mold covers more than 10 square feet or appears in porous materials or ventilation systems. Extreme cases, like the Fort Bragg barracks that will be torn down, are rare. Jones, the facility's command leader, says by far the most problems the inspections found were on bases in the southeast. where, Where the environmental conditions are most conducive to mold growth, to where you've got, you know, high heat and humidity particularly in the summer months. And those summer months are coming. For Bragg's Housing Division Chief, Steve Weichel says last year the base averaged 40 mold-related maintenance work orders per week. I'm anxious to see... Is there a noticeable difference? Did it increase because everybody's now aware of mold? Or did it reduce because we've educated them on the difference between what is reportable and what is cleanable by the soldier in the unit themselves? And that data could help tell how the Army is doing in its escalated fight against mold. I'm Jay Price reporting.
0: This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans.
1: A pair of bridges in Essex County are being renamed after two residents who were killed in the line of duty. The first bridge, which crosses I-87 in Scroon Lake, will be named after Trooper Lawrence P. Gleason. Trooper Gleason was killed by an armed man after responding to a domestic abuse call. The second bridge crosses i D Seven in Chesterfield. It'll be named after Marine Lance Corporal Scott Lee Schultz. Schultz was killed in a terrorist attack when his barracks in Lebanon were bombed. According to a press release, the bills to rename the bridges were proposed by State Senator Dan Steck and Assemblyman Matt Simpson. They passed in the legislature last week. Steck and Simpson say they hope to honor Gleason and Schultz's sacrifices.
0: Citizen Advocates in Malone is moving to a bigger clinic and expanding its mental health and addiction counseling services. According to the Watertown Daily Times, Citizen Advocates Crisis and Recovery Center is now called Behavioral Health Urgent Care. They moved from 6th Street to a bigger building on Finney Boulevard, and adults and children in crisis will now be treated in separate parts of the building. Citizen Advocates is still open 24-7 with no appointment required.
1: A sophomore at Indian River High School was named Boys and Girls Clubs of America's New York State Military Youth of the Year. The Youth of the Year program recognizes military youth who exhibit a strong sense of leadership. This is the third consecutive year that a Fort Drum teenager has been chosen for this award. In school, Abigail, Abigail Frimpong participates in volleyball, arts club and is a member of the trium music honor society she's also an active member of the Fort Drum youth center where she is a bgca junior staff a leadership program that helps teens explore careers in youth or human services in a press release abigail says that being the military youth of the year for new york felt like she was proving that she could do great things
0: and the town of Canton is celebrating the birthday of one of its oldest residents this afternoon. Frank White is turning 105 years old. And the town historical collection is throwing him a birthday party open house from 4 to 6. White is a veteran, a skilled model boat builder, and the founding florist of White's Flowers. He loves the water and paddled in the very first Rushton canoe race in 1962. White grew up six miles outside of Canton on his family's farm in the hamlet of Pirates when it was still a bustling paper mill town. He witnessed the closure of the mill and the onset of the Great Depression. Amy Feireisel interviewed him about his childhood and priorities five years ago, just before his 100th birthday. Here's part of that story.
6: Frank was the oldest of eight kids. His uncle Harry worked for the mill, the DeGrasse River Paper Company, as a pipe fitter for the maintenance department.
4: It's always something that's breaking down or has to be replaced, and that was his job.
6: Uncle Harry worked the 4 to 11 shift. The paper mill ran 24 7, and lived in a company duplex. It was just one of the company housing options, including the Beehive, a low rent apartment complex that housed immigrant families. They'd flocked there starting in 1904 when the mill opened. As a child, Frank spent a lot of time with those families. The kids were his classmates at the piratey school.
4: What talent? Polish? French Canadian? Hungarians. Took care of me like I was taking care of at home.
6: Frank says he never went inside the mill while it was running, but that it was a big part of his life. Walked by it every day. First thing you saw was the finishing route, railroad tracks. The train tracks that led from Pirates to Canton ran right along the White Farm property line. And Frank says he often jumped on board to hitch a ride home. The bus was another way to get to Pirates, and Canton residents crowded it on the weekends for dancing, nightlife, and booze. Frank was two years old when Prohibition began. According to him and Canton Town historian Linda Casserly, Pirates became a hotbed for bootlegging. Frank describes Pirates as having a sort of circle around it.
4: No law went beyond that circle.
6: That was a problem for Frank's family, because their home was right on the edge of it.
4: Down around the corner, there was a road that went off to Herman and the parties. And they'd have a show and somebody'd be out there in our driveway waving everybody down and say, hey, they're uh, checking cars down here. You got anything on? Bang, they'd turn around and they were gone.
6: Pirates had a bit of a wild reputation up until the plant's abrupt closure in 1930 by the International Paper Company, which had bought the mill in 1927. International Paper had decided transporting paper from northern New York downstate was too expensive.
4: There were seven paper mills that was closed around the north country and they consolidated the papermaking down to correct or Palmer and that's where the many of the employees of this paper mill went.
6: Frank is referring to the Palmer Falls paper plant in Corinth, not far from Saratoga Springs. His uncle Harry ended up moving there, but there weren't nearly enough jobs for everyone. It was a hard blow, especially after the stock market crash of 1929. Almost overnight, pirates emptied out.
4: I'd say 75% of the students I went to school with moved away. They followed the trade. Uh, what was there left up here
6: for them to do? Frank says nearly all the first-generation families moved out, and the folks that stayed were farmers, Irish immigrants, and local families who'd been there before the mill ever opened.
4: There was nothing left. Uh, all the stores closed, the hotel got torn down. No region for a uh, bar room, there was no region for a uh, ball team.
6: The machinery in the mill was eventually junked for scrap metal, and most of the company housing was moved or taken apart. The sudden loss of the mill and its workers, the depression, it was grim in the early 1930s. Frank says his family was really lucky to be farmers.
4: We sold milk, Nicola Cork. That was double the money, and we were getting at at the plant. White says the family farm
0: and selling milk is what got his family through many hard, lean years. As an adult, White served in the Army during World War II, then graduated from SUNY Canton when it was an agricultural school. He started his own florist business on Minor Street, which is still in operation today. The Canton Historical Collection will be celebrating White's life at an open house from 4 to 6 this afternoon. (laughs) ¶¶
1: listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Mo,
0: And I'm Monica Sandresky. Coming up in just a minute, why art galleries are important community spaces in the North Country. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us.
1: Weather service has a mix of clouds and uh, some rain, but maybe uh, clearing skies by late this afternoon and tonight. Uh, highs today, uh, upper 60s, low 70s. Light and variable winds, isolated showers, there were heavy showers, heavy rain showers in the forecast for the Champlain Valley through tonight. Uh, Scattered showers tomorrow and actually Thursday and Friday as well. Good chance of some scattered rain Wednesday. Highs tomorrow, again upper 60s, low 70s, and then Highs a little warmer on Thursday, a high upper 70s near 80 Thursday afternoon. Right now in Canton, we've got uh, clouds, fog, and 57 degrees.
0: The North Country boasts many art galleries that are open to the public as community spaces, from the Frederick Remington Museum to Blue Seed Studios in Saranac Lake and the Hyde Collection in Glens Falls, which has an impressive collection with etchings by Rembrandt and Picasso and brass sculptures from 15th-century Italian artists. And they recently hired a new arts educator to share the pieces with the next generation of arts appreciators. Caitlin Foley worked at the Shelburne Museum In Shelburne, Vermont, and at a contemporary art center in Sun Valley, Idaho, before coming back east to work in Glens Falls. I caught up with her about what drew her to the Hyde Collection, her hopes for the museum, and why physical galleries are important to our community.
5: The Hyde Collection is very unique because it not only includes this fantastic um, historical and, you know, very well known collection of master artworks, um, you know, to, to come and be able to see a Rembrandt and a, a Peter Paul Rubens and, um, you know, a Renoir and Picasso all in the same space is is wonderful. But not only um, did that draw me to the Hyde Collection, but the the fact that it has a really renowned contemporary art collection so I just previous to being at the Hyde I was at a contemporary art museum and worked with living artists um, regularly and saw saw lots of different kinds of work and so um, to really have the foundations of that really well-known contemporary art collection is is unique to have both right in in this this small town museum but um, it it's n- it is not a small town museum, though, because it's quite a world-class museum with artwork being borrowed you know, and, and sent all over the world for people to see it. So it, it is a very important piece that is a part of this town's culture, and it's just an honor to be a part of continuing that.
0: In the digital age with so much access to images of art and how accessible that is digitally, what is the significance of that? Physical art gallery?
5: I mean, I think it can transcend how you see and think about a piece of art. Um, you know, having it hung in, for example, in the Hyde House itself, that's a very particular circumstance when you're seeing that art. So, you know, why is it in this house? Who are these people that lived here? giving you that context of why. A, why it is in this town, but B, why it was important enough to somebody for them to hang it in their home and then to share with their community. And that brings conversation just, for, you know, conversation with another onlooker, conversation with yourself about who these people were and why it's important that this is here. Um, and then if you're just in, in one of our other galleries, um, you know, a more traditional looking gallery museum gallery space. Um, the way that things might be paired together is not a way that you might be seeing them uh, online in a digital world. So, I think these stories that professionals at museums weave into why they've placed things together, why they've organized a group of artwork together, what is the signif- you know the context behind what is the significance of this piece are all things that you may not be getting by just looking at a piece of art on a screen, as well as the particulars of like the actual creation of the art. So the brushstrokes that you can actually see because you're right in front of it, or um, different materials that might have been used, or um, just the conversations that you might have as you're standing next to someone looking at a piece of art that if you're just looking on a screen, you might not have those conversations.
0: What are some things that gallery goers can expect what are things that you want to bring to uh to the collection to the museum
5: um i am really excited about bringing you know a diverse group of people in um Maybe that's in the same visit, you know, if it's intergenerational to see, you know, grandparents here with their grandchildren and all enjoying everything at once is is a goal of mine. So making sure that those experiences are relevant and accessible for everyone um, and that it's fun and that it's something that, um, you know, as an art educator in a museum setting, it is essential that um, that the arts... Are celebrated as, um, you know, something, and, and that museums are celebrated as a place where, where everyone feels welcome and excited to be at, and, um, that it's, that it matters, that it matters to have, you know, an art collection housed here that you can come and see in person. And what does that mean to your, to your everyday life? Um, but that we can all sit and talk about art, and that helps us become, um, better citizens, closer and connected to one another.
0: Caitlin Foley is the arts educator at the Hyde Collection in Glens Falls. This is North Country Public Radio. You're listening to Northern Light right here on your community's public radio station. I'm Monica Sandreski here with Todd Moe. There are many events going on throughout the community that we want to remind you of, including... This Saturday in Potsdam, the Juneteenth celebration, all are welcome. This is a free cultural celebration sharing a catered, heritage-rich meal, children's activities, Black is Beautiful fashion show, drumming, presentations, music, dancing, and more. You can find out more from the Facebook page for the Juneteenth celebration in Potsdam from 4 to 8.0. This Saturday evening.
1: Coming up tonight in Canton, a community conversation uh, this evening at 7 o'clock at the Canton First Presbyterian Church in the sanctuary. Everyone's invited and welcome to speak and listen regarding student safety, well being, and the school resource officer position at Canton Central Schools. That's at the uh, Canton First Presbyterian Church in the Sanctuary, 7 o'clock tonight.
0: And we are into paddling season, so don't forget to head out with the Laurentian chapter of the Adirondack Mountain Club. They're doing a paddle on uh, Wanakena to Cranberry Lake, leisurely paddle from Wanakena to Dead Creek Flow. You can find out more from adklaurentian.org.
1: That's it for Northern Light. For this Tuesday, June 13th. There's more of Morning Edition just ahead.
0: Yes, and after that, stick around for the Marketplace Morning Report coming up between 8.51 and 9 o'clock, where you'll get caught up on all the morning's business news. And if you miss an episode of Northern Light, never fear. You can listen back to the archive any place you get your podcasts. And subscribe to our daily news roundup, Story of the Day, hosted by David Summerstein, where you'll hear the biggest stories in our region and get the latest on the day's news. I'm Monica Sandresky.
1: And I'm Todd Moe. Thanks for listening. Be well.